Welcome to Inspire, the Angel Flores podcast, where you'll be inspired, equipped, and entertained. This podcast is sponsored by Mosaic Church, a church for people who don't really like church. To learn more about Mosaic, please visit our website at GreeleyMosaic.com. Okay, Jerry, thanks for being on. Thanks for coming on and, and doing this. We've been friends for, I don't know, 12, 13, 14, I mean, Mosaic's 15. You guys came along in the first couple of years, so it's yep. been a long time. Yep. Got a lot of history. Um, we've had a text thread with a couple of other guys that's gone probably 10 years <laughs> and uh, a lot of insults. And so Diane said we can't be cutting each other down. Today. A lot of so, gems in there. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of blackmail material both ways <laughs> right. for sure. So let's uh, let's kick off, Jerry. Uh, just let's hear your story. Where were you born? Where'd you grow up? Uh, that kind of stuff. All right. Well, Jerry Naranjo, I was born in Pierce, Colorado, which is about 20 miles north of here. Uh, I was born population in- Population of Pierce. Population of Pierce. Well, I'm here today, so that means it's down <laughs> significantly. I don't know. Really, I think it was maybe 500 people. Yeah, so small and- little- farming town it's a farming town mostly where everybody was uh, working in agriculture or you know some people were commuting into Greeley but mostly a ag town and all right very farmers much, that kind of thing yeah farmers and and support people there was a you know dairies in the area so people were living in town and and work you know like a sleep uh, sleepover community oh, bedroom community, bedroom community right, yeah. right everybody's just working somewhere how did else. your family end up there my dad, my dad's dad, my grandpa moved from New Mexico, northeast New Mexico, a town called Trujillo, and okay. he was born on a ranch with all of his brothers and sisters. I think there were there were a lot of them, somewhere around fourteen to Holy maybe smokes. I don't know the story exactly, but uh-huh. it's a lot. Okay. Well, the dream of all the that, boys, that was your dad's siblings, fourteen. Yep. No TV. That was back my then. dad's dad's oh, his, siblings. Okay, yep. your grandpa's, my grandpa's, so uncles and aunts. Yep. At least 14. Yeah. I think my great, great grandpa had 20 plus kids. Wow. So out of the ranch. A lot of love to give. (laughs) Out of the ranch, you needed sheep herders, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) And that was really the, it was a dead end out there for all of these young cowboys. And they were growing up out on the ranch and there really was no future other than, than working the ranch. So most of them left and most of them came north to work for Union Pacific. Okay. So my grandpa actually worked in Cheyenne hmm. in the stockyard and he, you know, then settled in Pierce. So it's about a 45 minute drive into Cheyenne. Ah, got it. So a lot of his, a lot of his brothers did that. I mean, I have an uncle or his brother was living in uh, North Platte, Nebraska, same situation, working the stockyards. Commuting the same way. Though. They all did the same thing, right? They needed to get out of the farm. They needed to get off the ranch and they needed to come make money. So my grandpa had about five acres out east of Pierce, and that's where he raised everybody. Mm. Uh, my dad, his brothers, and his sisters, I think there are 10 or 11 of them. And so my dad was actually born in Cheyenne, and um, once they settled in in northern Colorado, Pierce became home. Mm. And then how many siblings do you have? I have one brother and one sister. Okay. Sister, a couple of years younger than me, and my brother's maybe nine years younger than I am. All right. Talk about growing up in Pierce. 
<laughs> growing up in Pierce. Well, we grew up out in the country, right? So we weren't actually even in the city limits of Pierce. We were in out east of town, northeast of town. We were living on my grandpa's farm in a mobile home. Okay. And that's, I mean, for the, for most of my childhood, that's the memory I have. And I have the memory of um, driving in town and driving into the town of Pierce population, four or 500. And that's where all the people who were financially wealthy were living. Interesting. Right? <laughs> so we were, when we could go into town or ride our bikes into town, we got to see how, um, what the other side of the tracks looked like. Wow. Literally the other side of the tracks because we lived next to the railroad tracks. Wow. Literally so, on the other side of the tracks. Yeah. <laughs> Bunch of little kids riding their bikes. Yeah. Saying, look how all these rich people live. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we drive into Pierce to dream. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I don't know what age I was when, um, you know, my dad had, my dad went through his own transformation. You know, my dad was 17, 18 when I was born. So, oh, wow. you know, we had 10, 12 years there of, of him navigating um, adult life. Trying uh, to figure it out. Yeah. yeah. A young man to a, to a man. And um, I think somewhere along the way, you know, he had a transformation and things started popping for him. And I believe it was around 10, 12 years old, we actually moved into town. Mm. I remember riding my chopper bike into town like we had just hit the lotto, right? So we're <laughs> moving Jefferson's into, uh, yeah, moving man, we up. were moving on up and um, it was amazing, right? That I remember that bike ride like it was yesterday that we wow. got to move into town. Mm. So you did, so you guys, your dad bought a house or? Yep. So what did he do? What, what was he, what kind of work was he doing when you grew up and? Yeah, starting starting out, my dad worked in agriculture, right, and just trying to find different places to work, uh, different jobs, and it was actually his brother-in-law gave him a job in concrete, mm. doing concrete work here in Greeley for Cowan, Cowan Concrete back in the day. Are they and still around? Or? I don't believe they're around anymore, um, but, you know, the company was around for a long time. A lot of my family actually worked for that company, and a lot of them you know, learn the trade, the concrete trade. So my dad got on at a young age and, you know, within a year's time, he moved up rather quickly and little by little, he started to master that craft of, of concrete work and concrete finishing and flat work mostly, or what were they yeah, doing? He was, sidewalks? He was doing a lot of flat work to start with, but what became his niche and his specialty was structural concrete and the ability to form and build false work to pour concrete into became his niche. So in 1982, he started his own company and started doing structures and whatever concrete work needed to be done for a couple of big GCs in the okay. Northern Colorado area. So, okay. So a, a structural, is that like, um, I don't be know. A bridge abutment. It'd be an oh, irrigation okay. diversion structure. Um, so you're building retaining these big walls. boxes. You're going to pour concrete in them and they're going to have different functions. Yep. Essentially. Okay. Yeah. <coughs> so that was his specialty. That was really his niche. And that's where things started to take off for him. Hmm. And that's, I guess, how we got to move into town. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> yeah. So now he's the the boss. Yep. Yeah. He and my uncle started a company in 1982. And um, they didn't start out with much. I remember the first jobs they did were out of the back of a car, right? Wow. And they had tools in the trunk. Then they got a pickup. And then they had another pickup. And then they... You know, That's when you know there. you're making it, when you get the pickup. I think the, the time uh, that it hit that they were onto something was when they got their first uh, cell phones 
oh, in their wow. trucks, but they were actually big radios, uh-huh. right? And you had to carry them in a small suitcase. Right, I remember those. And, uh, and you know, it made sense from a business standpoint. You needed those things. And when they had those things, to me, it was like, well, I was probably a teenager by that point. I said, you know, they're doing, they're doing well. They're yeah. finally like legitimizing their, uh, their company and they're becoming important in this small little piece of the world. Right. Yeah. Getting the piece of the pie. Yeah, yep, for sure. So then you're in high school watching this happen. Where'd you go to high school? Yeah. I went to Highland high school, which is in all, which, you know, Highland high school back in the day used to be, you used to have all high school Pierce, none. Every town had its own school. Agriculture was booming. A lot of things going on around agriculture. Well, as everybody started to leave agriculture or things became centralized and taken over by, you know, bigger farms, those towns started to fade away. And so Highland High School and the Highland School System is really a bunch of towns put together to make up one school system. Mm. A lot of the kids are bussed in from farms and ranches way out on the eastern, northeastern plains. So it is really unique in that sense. It's So if it snowed, it shut down because the buses. You know, I don't know. It, it snowed today and it the chaos that was on the roads. Uh, <laughs> it's surprising. Come I on, people. I don't know that we had a lot of snow days back then. It was just a different part of life, a different way of life, and um, a different level of toughness and a lot fewer cars. Yeah, so a lot of that, yeah. We, we would always be in school, it seemed mm-hmm. like. Very few snow days. So then graduated from Highland yep. High School. Graduated from Highland in 1988. And um, what were you interested in in school? Kind of, were you in any clubs? Was it? You know, I was very much into sports and uh, football, basketball, track. That was my thing. Um, as far <laughs> as school went, I have a unique story with regard to how I ended up where I ended up. So when I was in elementary school, there was a teacher. Um, I think her last name was Ruth as in Babe Ruth. Mm. And, uh, she carved out a, a small group of us to start on an accelerated learning path. And in fourth grade, what would happen is they would bus a few of us all the way to alt. So from none to all 10 miles on the bus at noon so that we could be Big under her watch. Yeah, yeah. We'd made it as, as students, right? <laughs> yeah, we had yeah, made yeah. it. And it was really the start of the first I'd ever heard of a gifted and talented program uh. that she created under her watch. Wow. So when that happened for me, what, what really kicked in was that I was good at school and I could get somewhere in this world with being good at school. Mm. And that was really her, all her creation. Right. Because she had the vision for that. And that's, a, that's an important moment, I think, in, in anyone's life, but especially a kid when, when, a, when an adult you respect looks at you and s- says you're different in a good way. Mm-hmm. Like there's a, I mean, they start to sort somehow, right? Yep. And you're sorted into the, the good group. Yep. And that's a, that's a big moment man, for a kid. Yeah, it was. And the attention they put toward my education mm. was really special because it was unnecessary, mm. right? They could have just went about their business, teaching, right, and doing their thing, collecting their paycheck. But for whatever reason, she decided that 
she was going to do more than that. She was going to make an impact for whatever, whatever was motivating her. I have, I have right. no idea, but shout out know. to Miss Ruth, Miss Ruth. Yeah. Mrs. Ruth, Mrs. Ruth. And that happened to me along my path or along my journey. I would run into educators who would just take an interest in me. I remember uh, my very first experience um, in high school track and I had a coach who was actually, he's a local legend in a lot of ways. He was a punter kicker for UNC Mm. and he was trying out for NFL teams and, you know, trying to get on as a place kicker. And my freshman year, I ended up going to state in the long jump and why this guy with all the things he's probably got going on in his life, took so much time and attention or time and care to get me to stay, get me back, making sure I was getting the very best training I could Mm. possibly get, you know, introducing me to um, better ways of eating, better ways of performing as Mm. far as stretching and weightlifting and, you know, why that person was put into my path. I, you know, I still don't know, but I, there are some people along the way that I'll never forget for, the way they interjected themselves into my life for no real reason. Right. No real reason we can understand. Right. Yeah. I got, <coughs> the way I describe that is I think God is playing this giant game of cosmic invisible chess mm-hmm. and he'll put pieces in places and not necessarily the things we want. Right. Oftentimes it's, it's, it's something we don't even want, yep. but he's, he's got this big game in mind that we can't see. So that sounds like that's exactly what was happening. This, this teacher, this coach, take an interest in this kid who's some farm kid, mm-hmm. but they saw something. Maybe they see themselves. You know, yeah. that's possible that they see themselves. And so, yeah, anyway. so Yeah, so Kevin Jeldon was, was my coach, and he's still involved in the track, track and field community. And I think one of the things that I should say about him, too, is he taught me how to be uncomfortable. Mm. and how to be comfortable with the fact that you're going to be uncomfortable. Mm. The workouts that he would put together for us, I mean, were absolutely beyond words, <laughs> difficult. Torture. Yeah, and he and he knew it, and he'd done it himself. Right. Um, he actually took me to Broncos camp, uh, summer camp one time, and people knew him, and... You know, I was mesmerized by the amount of um, dedication he had to what he was trying to do in athletics. Mm. Now, he didn't make it as an NFL kicker, you know, even though I would hold uh, footballs for him while he kicked after practice. He, he never quite cracked in, uh, <laughs> but it was a it was a great piece of, of my life to share that journey with him for that yeah. little bit of time. To be exposed to... To be exposed to a guy who's pursuing greatness. Yep. Like to see what that looks like up close. Yep. Because even obviously your dad was working on stuff and but he's also your dad. Yeah. And he's also telling you to pick up your socks and clean your room. And, and so it's hard to admire the grind mm-hmm. in someone that close. Yeah. That's interesting. So then you get this guy and you get to see what it looks like and maybe start seeing yourself in that somewhat kind of light. Interesting. Yeah, he didn't really give me an option to say I wasn't going to college. It's where you're going to college and what's the best program and where you're going to run and where you're going to jump and how does that fit and does that make sense? And he's there walking that journey with me 
for some reason we'll never understand. Mm -hmm. And it's not even a consideration that I wouldn't go to school. It's just where am I going to jump? Where am I going to run? What's the scholarship look like? Mm -hmm. And now your dad, what was his level of education? So my dad, <laughs> you know, we, he makes a joke. I, I didn't graduate from high school. And then he says, well, I actually never made it to high school. He uh, made it in like seventh grade. Okay. So, so he hated school. He hated the whole, the, the dynamics, uh, the class, uh, the, you know, the things that were going on during those times as far as racism and, mm -hmm. and exclusion. So he and experienced that. He experienced that. Was he in a segregated school? He wasn't there a lot. So. <laughs> <laughs> he might have been. The he stories I hear, he wasn't there very yeah, often. My dad was in a segregated school. Yeah. White and Mexican drinking fountains, all of it. Yeah. So. yeah. It was very obvious that when you went into town where you needed to be and what your place was. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So my dad had a pretty tough, my dad just didn't put up with that. It didn't, it just rubbed him the wrong way. Right. So instead of conforming and figuring it out, he just, he just couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, growing up the way they did in poverty, the way they did, he just had a bit of a chip on his shoulder and right. he wasn't going to, he wasn't going to do it. Mm. So he didn't fit well in that society that environment. Yeah. So then you come along, you're like, I want to, I want to run in college and I want to, I want to go to college. First of all, mm -hmm. <coughs> how did that go over? What was, what was your mom? What was she thinking during all this time? And You know, there's there's probably two different things that were going on in her head. One was that she was, they were young, right? Very young, 17 when they were married. So some of the things that must've been going on in their head, I, I can't ever imagine, but. So she's 34, 35 at this time. Yeah. Trying to figure out how to help her son. Yeah. Do something she's never done. Yeah. They asked me, you know, just a couple of years ago, how did you ever even get into college? Like, what did you do? Was it, did you have to fill things out? And if it weren't for Highland, Highland High School and the people that were in my Counselors path, I would have never figured it out. Yeah. Right. My so parents had, had no out. experience with that. You had to fill all the FAFSA and all that stuff out. You're doing it. Oh as yeah. A kid. Yeah. And you know, my mom was always super supportive. Uh -huh. She was super supportive of what my dad was trying to do as well. And I think what I, what I saw from them is that my dad, once he knew that I was considering that, he saw a path for me too, mm -hmm. that I wouldn't have to go down the path he went down. Nice, yeah. Right? I wouldn't have to spend or have a career in the trades. Mm. Super hard on your body, super hard on your family. It's just hard. Right. Right? So he thought, if you can go to school, that's going to be a better path. I don't know what that means, but it's got to be better than this. Yes. So You're going to be on the other side of the tracks from the get. You <laughs> right. You know what I mean? As opposed right. to having to scrape and yeah i mean the whole goal of every parent is or at least should be i want to push our kids up one level past where we were and i don't know what that looks like because i don't live there but i again i just know it's better than this yeah and i want to give them a better shot start them better you know all that so that's what he was doing yeah interesting yep. cool <coughs> i so think you he, go to school he ended up you know supporting whatever I decided to do, but they didn't have a lot of a uh, lot to say about where I was going to go. Uh -huh. I ended up going to Colorado school of mines in golden. Um, you couldn't get into UNC or I couldn't, I, I tried, but <laughs> I, I was doing the best I could with what I had. So, <laughs> so I went to school of mines instead of UNC. <laughs> so those of you that are not from here, uh, school of mines is 
maybe the hardest school in Colorado to get into. I, uh, you know, engineering school. That place is a torture chamber. So <laughs> <laughs> prestige. I mean, when when someone says their kids going to mines, it's a pretty big deal. UNC is also a great school. Yeah. However, not as hard to get into as mines. So yeah, is mines that is the really one tough. You applied to? I applied. I was actually on a path to try to get into West Point, the military oh, academy. Okay. And I was also, my dream school was Notre Dame. Mm. And um, I think they were really good at football at the time. Yeah. And I was a Catholic. So, I mean, it was the Holy Grail. <laughs> it was a fit, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, but what happened is I had a cousin who came back from the war, the Iraq uh, conflict. Okay. And he came back and I don't know all of the details of how it happened, but he came back severely injured. Mm. And um, I got to spend a Christmas with him. And, you know, to me that I don't know if it was a sign that keep going down this academic, this other academic path or just what it was. Military's not. Yeah. But at that time I was just very disgruntled with, with what he had went through Mm. and then also how he was being treated as a veteran. Mm. So I I think I just made a decision at that point to have an impact a different way. Mm. Interesting. So mine's it was. Mine's it was. I had a track scholarship. It was fairly close to home, um, but it was really a financial decision at that point. Notre Dame was about three times the cost, mm-hmm. and Mines was a great school. And all of my academic advisors were promoting that I go to Mines. Okay. Knowing that in four or five years, you will come out and you will, you will have a career. You'll be highly marketable. Exactly. So then what did you study at Mines? So I went to Mines with the idea that I would stay in civil engineering. You know, I had a lot of exposure to that with my dad and in the work he was doing. I actually ended up, I was actually recruited to um, join a mining engineering company or mining company out of Boise, Idaho, Mm -hmm. about after my sophomore year. So a recruiter by the name of Bill Jackson came onto campus. He interviewed a bunch of us. They made me an offer. I was going to move from uh, Colorado to Boise, Idaho for the summer and attend um, uh, work in the corporate office. So I ended up going and detouring a little bit. I ended up in the mining um, industry for the rest of my academic career, Hmm. but it was all, it's all similar. And in a lot of ways it's um, you know, it's roads, it's access, it's three dimensional modeling. And in a lot of ways it's very similar to civil engineering from, for what I was doing Mm -hmm. uh, surface mining. Hmm. So you did that through college then. Yeah. That was the idea is that yep. I'm going to work there in the summers and yeah. go to work there when I'm done. Oh, for sure. I went to Boise, Idaho on an internship. Uh, Bill Jackson was really my mentor and um, I respected him. He was a Vietnam veteran. He was African-American. He was in corporate as an African-American. I just didn't even know that was possible. Hmm. And the way he took me under his wing, it made me realize that None of this is going to stop me. The fact that I'm brown, the fact that I'm from a little town, Mm. none of it was going to stop me if I really wanted it. So I show up into Boise and he took me in like one of his own. He took, he brought in, he was out recruiting minority students. That was his job within the corporation. Mm -hmm. And if he brought you in, you had to be the best of the best. Mm. He was not going to bring in a dud. And if you showed up to work and your tie wasn't straight, your belt and shoes didn't match, all of that was a no-go. 
He'd bring you in. He'd take a look at you. He would correct you. I remember one of my first experiences with him was in the lunchroom cafeteria and he was watching me eat. And the way I grew up is we ate with a tortilla, right? Mm -hmm. Most everything we ate was with a tortilla. Okay. And good way to eat. It's a beautiful way to eat, (laughs) (laughs) but it wasn't very impressive. And Mm. he, uh, he pulled me aside and he goes, we're, we aren't doing this. And he goes, I understand where you come from. He goes, we'll be at my house for dinner at six o'clock tonight. And so that evening, I was given a very intense class on uh, etiquette and how I need to eat and in the corporate world, what that looks like. And you don't have to thank him for that. He, he really did introduce me to a lot of, of things and corrected a lot of my uh, bad behavior. Yeah. And I'm sure he did some of that because it was a reflection on him and it was his job. But I imagine to have you at his house. Yep. It's different. Like that's got to be, you know, I care about people. Yeah. Are you still in touch with him or? Yeah, I, I do have a, I do have plans to reach out to him. We haven't connected in quite a while, but mm. uh, he's still very much a part of, cool. of what I do every day. And um, big shout out to Bill Jackson, then. Bill Jackson, yes. Boise, Idaho, Action Jackson. All right. Action yeah. Jackson. So you graduate. Yep. With a degree in civil engineering, civil engineering okay. with a minor in mining engineering. Okay. And then right back to Boise. Right back to a, a coal mine in Texas. So it was, um, it, I actually met another um, engineer in Boise by the name of John Agee, who took me under his wing as well. Mm. And when I graduated, John was working at this coal mine in Texas. Um, and I don't know how it all happened, but I knew that when I graduated, I was going to work for Morrison Knutson, MK. And it just so happened that John was in uh, Texas and that's where I ended up. So I got to go to work, you know, all along the way I'm with people that are making a difference in my life. And it just is, like you said, this chess match that's happening with, without any knowledge of, of us knowing the details is going on behind the scenes. Right. So I'm placed into Texas working under John Agee. And then how long did you do that? Well, it was only two years. And the reason it was only two years is because the mine I was at adopted a new software system. And it was a 3D modeling of surface mining operation. And because I was young and because I had this opportunity and I had, I was working under John Agee who worked his butt off. He was the first one there, last one to leave, worked on Saturdays. Mm. And that's the mentality they put into me because I had that mentality and was able to model that work ethic. Now I come from a long line of people who know how to work, right? So it was long before John Agee, I saw people working from three, four in the morning to six, seven o'clock at night. Right. You know, doing so concrete, yeah. doing concrete work. It's the most <clears throat> brutal industry there is. It's, I mean, big shout out to people who can actually uh, do that. You know, we, we talk about, well, it's snowing. I got to go out and shovel, um, you know, the inconvenience of that, if you're in the concrete trades, you're up early, early in the morning. And then by 7am, your body is under stress. You're working, mm-hmm. you're, you're in the elements, whether it's hot, whether it's cold. Um, and you do that all day long. Mm. So of course, you know, coming from that and then going into the professional world with John Agee, and here's a guy who is just absolutely disciplined, right? He shows up every day, brings his A game. He's just the perfect model of how you get things done in, mm. in that industry. 
So I learned this software and um, because I'm working all the time, I start to learn it better than a lot of people in the industry. So it created an opportunity for me to travel to Germany to work at an open pit coal mine in Germany. Mm. So it was during the deprivatization of uh, the German coal industry, and, or I should say it was the privatization of the German coal industry where the government run mines were taken over, given to private uh, companies to own and operate. Interesting. And that created a big demand for um, American technology. And I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. Once the government's not involved, then efficiency <laughs> starts to matter. You well, know, then in, profits start to matter. And yeah. In East Germany. So I didn't go to like Berlin. Well, I did, I did go to Berlin, but where I ended up in Germany wasn't, you know, the pictures you see and the beautiful uh, mountains. And I was in former East Germany. Ooh. Right. So it was all. Did you see the wall? I saw pieces of, the, of wall. the wall. Yeah. Yeah. But I also saw and got to know the people of East Germany. And in these coal mines, the the mine would employ 30,000 people. Well, by the time we had gone through two years of going through the East German coal mines, that same mine would employ 3,000 people. So 27,000 people lost their job because the mine is now privatized and run for profit. Mm. So we weren't exactly welcome there. I could see that. And, but I was, I was received by the people I was working with um, as somebody who was there to help them. Mm. And because I knew this software and I could run the software, they, they took me in and I got very, got to be very close with a lot of, a lot of them. So it was a great experience. Um, the fact that I learned this software, I was able to then travel from there to other parts of, of the world, you know, Venezuela, Australia, um, all parts of the U.S. just working in this. Um, On somebody else's dime, no less. Getting yeah. paid to go, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it was a hard life. It was a lot of travel, a lot of, um, a lot of long hours. I mean, every day was a 12-hour day, but I also got to see a lot of the world yeah. uh, at, a, at a young age. Tra- traveling? I always say traveling is glamorous to people who, who don't have to travel for work. Yeah. If you <laughs> travel I, for recreation, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, then it's fun. Yeah, you yep. see cool stuff. But every hotel looks the same. Every breakfast buffet looks the same. Yeah. <laughs> every waffle machine. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so how'd you end up in the family business? Oh, well, it's it was a detour off of the uh, path of the mining business that I was in. And I was I was actually part of a team that was looking at starting contract mining for uh, in Jamaica in a bauxite mine. Mm-hmm. So once again, that sounds glamorous, right? But the bauxite mine is actually deep in the center of Jamaica uh, where there are no beaches, where there are no right. resorts. It's just hot. It's just hot. It's a lot of poverty and a bauxite mine. And the bauxite is a raw material that's used in the creation of aluminum. So it's big business, right? And I, was picked to join a team that was writing the proposal for that contract. And so I went down to Jamaica a couple times. We made connections. We built relationships. We were actually given the project. And my job was going to be uh, as the mine engineer for Bauxite Mine in Jamaica. Basically, the dream job. I was going to be the John Agee of this bauxite mine mm. in Jamaica. I had made it, right? Yeah. I had achieved. How old are you at this point? I was about 29. Okay. Put in your so, time. 
Yeah, I'd put in a lot of hard time. Yeah. Yes. And I, you know, uh, that position normally goes to a much older person, mm-hmm. but I had put in the time and I, with a lot of great mentoring, I was in a position to do that. And I was back in the U.S. and I was visiting my parents and I was hanging out with my dad when I found out that an Australian company had come in and undercut our bid and that the, the bauxite mine was now going to be given to this company. Mm. So there I sat without the Jamaican uh, this big project mine engineering manager yeah. position. And uh, my company decided at that point or offered me at that point a position in corporate. Mm. Well, I knew that position in corporate wasn't going to last long. I knew I'd be back on the road very soon. I also suspected I'd be going back to Venezuela and I would be become permanent in Venezuela. Mm. And at the time I just didn't think, you know, I'd been in Venezuela uh, politically, tumultuous tumultuous yeah. a lot of upheaval they're, they're, i mean they're communists now so, yeah yeah so, it was some so rough all of time. the process to because they weren't at that time right they were there was like yeah there were a lot of things going on, going on and stuff. <laughs> i remember leaving venezuela and there were times where um we would have a driver who would take us to the airport and based on what was going on at the time we would either ride out to the airport comfortably or we'd have to get down in oh the back seat because Americans, if they knew you were an American and they knew his car, right? So they knew he was transporting expats back and forth to the airport. Uh, but if they thought he had a person in the car, you were potentially a target for a kidnapping, uh, which is how they were raising money. Um, it was a very, very corrupt system at the time. And, and I know they're still going through a lot right now, but I didn't think that I wanted to live there mm-hmm. uh, knowing what I knew. So... I'm hanging out with my dad. We're talking about his business. And, you know, he, he and my brother, or he and his brother had built a, a business that was, at, you know, somewhere near a million bucks in revenue a year. So it was, you know, they were, they were, doing, we're doing well. How many guys did they have at the time? You know, they had maybe 10 guys, okay. you know, and it was, it was a great company mm-hmm. for them and what they were doing. Right. right? And I was in, I would come in, I would help them set up, you know, payroll, get a computer in, mm-hmm. set up a fax machine, you know, all those things we were yeah. trying to modernize and try to help him out. And then he offered me the idea of, well, maybe you just stay here, right? I mean, I don't think they wanted to see me traveling anymore. Like it was glamorous for a while, but right. I mean, I think they could see the wear and tear mm-hmm. that, it, that it was taking on you me. really happy. And- yeah, it was very difficult. Towards the end, it was, it would get really hard for me to fly out. And, uh, but I was a company man, so I'd go wherever, whenever, and for as long as they needed me to go. So we talked about the idea of me coming back. And, um, I think it was just when that happened, when Jamaica fell apart, it, I didn't know what I was going to do. I thought, I'll give it a try. I'll give it a go. Um, my uncle had talked about retiring. So there was an opportunity there that maybe I could become a part of the business that way. And so, so not just be an employee, but buy into yeah, part of it. Yeah. Yeah. It had to, it had to have something. Um, I mean, that was, that was enticing to me because it was an opportunity to be in business for myself. Right. But it was also, um, you know, my dad and my uncle planning their succession planning, right? How are they going to eventually get out of that business? And um, so your uncle was older than your dad. 
He was younger than my dad. Oh, okay. Yeah, but he wanted out. You know, he just was tired and it's a brutal business, you know. What year was this? This was in 99. Okay. Yep. So in 1999, I decided to leave my corporate job oh. and come back and yeah, drive my uncle's old used pickup back and forth <laughs> to Colorado Springs where I lived at the time. And um, <coughs> it was it was a very humbling experience. Um, you know, we we made it work. We just figured out the pay was going to be the pay, which is a massive pay cut for me to mm-hmm. do that. A lot of risk to do that, but it didn't take long before we were starting to do our own excavation, starting to do our own river restoration. Um, we needed to, right. There were now three people who were going to be owners of this company. Yeah. We needed revenue to justify that. So we went after it and we got it. Mm. What kind of work did you guys start pursuing? So we segued from the structural concrete into the river restoration. There's a ton of guys doing the structural stuff. Yeah, there's a ton of guys doing flower concrete. Right. It's a very low margin, high high labor cost business. There's a f- fewer subset of guys doing the structural concrete. Mm-hmm. And the niche my dad and my uncle were in and was that doing complicated structural concrete. Okay. So they were more specialized and you know, my dad had a special talent for building those things quickly. And that's really how they built the business, right? mm. building those types of structures. Okay. That so were, they were the go-to guys for complicated structural stuff. Yep. And it wasn't, it, it wasn't easy work, but you know, very driven mm-hmm. and very focused on, on, on making it. I mean, they had no other option, right? Yeah. So they, they made a business out of that. When I came back in, we looked at, maybe doing the work ourselves as a general and not being a subcontractor to somebody. How could we go about doing that? And then things. What kind of licensing do we need? All insurance? Yeah. How to bid work, how to bid big work, you know, as a prime contractor, how to negotiate bid bonds, um, you know, just the whole con the government contracting piece of that. Mm -hmm. And how are we going to go get those projects for ourselves? And then how are we going to do the excavation? Well, you know, through the network of people, at the time, that just started to line up. People started to come in, and then we started doing river restoration. And most river restoration has a structural concrete component. Explain that to the layman. What is river restoration? So river restoration is usually when a river needs to be upsized to accommodate development or urbanization, or it needs to be repaired due to flood damage. Erosion. Erosion. And it's a very niche market but in colorado you know and being on the the plains of colorado and the mountains just to our west we have a lot of rivers and waterways trying to get east so that and then we also have a bunch of urbanization so when you put those two things together there's a certain amount of work that needs to be done for those things to coexist i got you yeah got to got to put the water where we want it exactly that's where you guys come in yep so you started out so you're in that Thinking back to 99, 2000, Y2K, your dad and your uncle had to have had a lot of trust in you because you're coming in and disrupting the whole thing. Yep. You know, we're not going to just be a sub anymore. Mm-hmm. We're going to go, we're going to go after the the whole stake. Yep. It's going to take a bite. Right. Yep. Did they, were they intimidated by that? Were they nervous? Were they like, cause you could have blown the whole thing up and yep. they had this pretty good thing going yeah. That then Jerry came in and, and spoiled. So what was that? Yeah. What were those conversations like? Or 
because there there are people listening who are in family businesses. Yeah, and you know it's usually the young buck coming in and saying, "Hey, mm-hmm. I've got all these ideas. Let's use some technology. Let's." Mm-hmm. And but the old the old guard is saying, "Well, you wouldn't be eating if it wasn't for the way I've been doing it." You know what I right, mean? So how right. talk a little bit about that? It is very tough. Um, you have to be very. You have to be a humble servant to your elders, mm. and you have to swallow your pride, and you have to shut your mouth mm. <laughs> and listen. And I was very close to Those my. Are dad. all hard things to do? Yeah. Very hard. My dad and my uncle both. I was very close to them, and but I. So I didn't have a problem with that part. I knew um, that for this whole thing to work, I needed to give them the the respect at every opportunity. However, I also knew that there was opportunity there and mm. that we were in a niche market that not a lot of people wanted to work in, right? It's not just doing structural concrete, but you're doing structural concrete with the river right next to you. You're in the mud all the time. Mm. You're trying to figure out if it's going to rain. Is it going to mess up our, our progress? So you've got to divert the river while you work on it and yep. then bring it back in. Most right? of the time. Yeah. That's, that's a lot. Yeah. It is. It's a lot. It's, it's risky. And I started to build relationships with people who were experts in doing that. And mm-hmm. little by little, they, they would come to work for us. And I don't ever think that my skill was the engineering or the... Um, the design or the execution of, as a businessman. So like the technical side of it was not your biggest contribution. Yeah. I mean, there was some technical mm-hmm. stuff to do. And the fact that I was an engineer from the Colorado School of Mines opened a lot of doors for our company and gave us instant credibility right, yeah. in that space. Mm-hmm. But my main job was managing personalities and building teams, mm-hmm. right? So all of that technical knowledge, five years of just brutal, torturous engineering school. Yeah. It didn't really matter. It all came down to building teams, mm. right? It all came down to the things that Bill Jackson, John Agee, Kevin Jeldon taught me mm. right, on how to manage, how to manage men. What's your, give us a couple of thoughts on that. How do you manage grown men? Be one yourself. <laughs> <laughs> You know, take your, take all of your ego okay, and stuff it in a drawer and do what's best for the company, mm. do what's best for these people and really approach it as a servant to them. Okay. And your ego really does have to go away. You can't, for example, I, you know, I had my dad and my uncle, if we all three had an ego, it would have never worked. Right. It took somebody to put their ego away. And try to manage um, and navigate those complex relationships, and and then that just translated to when we were hiring people, right? If you hire somebody, they have an ego. If you're aware enough of that and can get a read on what makes them tick, what they need, then you can start to adapt and play the chess game with what do I need to do so that this person feels respected, heard and motivated right everybody needs to it's hard to feel like you're losing all the time as a man Mm -hmm. right even anybody a woman anybody right you don't want to feel like you're always conceding that gets old so that's the fine chess game you're talking about that fine line of i'm gonna let you i need you to feel like you were heard and you got what you were asking for Mm -hmm. 
it's the way I look at it. It's always the answer is yes, but here's how we're going to have to get there. Mm-hmm. It might not be the way you're thinking, yeah. but, uh, but, the, but the answer is going to be yes. We'll yep. just got to figure it out. Yeah. yeah. It's a challenge, man. Yeah. You got to put your ego away to be the ultimate diplomat mm. in business. Yeah. In, especially in family business. <clears throat> I can't think of one time where I had an argument with my dad. Mm. Just would not let it happen. Right. You know, it's just out of respect for him. There's just no way that was going to happen. Right. That's because he's still on top of that. You're, he's your dad. Yeah. More than whatever business it is. Yeah. Yeah. I can relate. My dad Before and I the... <laughs> pastor this church together and yeah. we've never had that. Yeah. I'd like an argument or anything. Yeah. Because that is more important than, than this. Yeah. So for sure. Than, that relationship is more yeah. important than anything else. Right. And the fact that, you know, that's the person I looked up to mm-hmm. for 18 years of my life. For me, it just wasn't an option. Right. right? Plus, he's no slouch because he built something significant mm-hmm. without, without all of the extra um, advantages that you had by going to school mm-hmm. and making connections. He did it. He just grinded it out. So that's yeah, pretty something to respect to. Yeah, who was Big his? Shout out to Herman. Yep. <laughs> who was his Bill Jackson, right? I mean, I'm sure he had mentors along the way. I know there were people in the business he respected, but we're talking a different level of making it, right? And Figuring you got to make himself. it off of your back and your body, mm. right? And you're just the mental toughness that requires is, is beyond words. Mm. Like, you can have mentors, you can have connections, but so many times that they got to where they were at and my dad got to where he was was just because he would outwork everybody Mm. show up early stay the latest yep yeah and then work like like you wouldn't believe Mm. like i don't know anybody who could outwork my dad in his prime Mm. and he had a pretty long prime yeah you know but his body's paying for it now sure yeah you know how old is he now (sighs) 72 okay yeah. He's retired. Well, he's going to be 70. I got to be careful with this. I got to give him just, <laughs> I can't be adding years or taking, yeah, exactly. taking him away. But yeah, so he'll be 72 this year. And he's retired. He is retired. Yeah. All right. Yep. So how did the transition go from your uncle at some point? Yeah, my uncle out of the retired company. out of the business in 2001. Oh, okay. So he was only there a couple of years. Yeah. Ago. You guys were only there together a couple of years. Yep. yep. And then he retired. So then it's just you and your dad. Yeah. Now, partners for... 20 years. Eight, yeah. 17 years. Okay. Yeah. We were, we were in business together and he retired in 2018. Okay. So then you bought the business. Yes. And now you're the sole proprietor. Yes. All right. What's the business? Uh, how many guys do you have now or whatever you want to share about how, how big it is compared to where it was. Yeah. So we run about 85 guys now. Okay. Um, we run anywhere from 25 to, uh, I would say approximately 25 million a year in revenue. Okay. Um, 85 guys. Sorry, I thought you said twenty five million. Hold on, <laughs> you don't get to keep all that though. Yeah, I know. Yeah, <laughs> believe me. <laughs> Some years you don't get to keep any of it. Exactly. Yeah, I know how that feels, man. And so, um, so let's talk a little bit now, Jerry, about kind of where you're at in life now. Uh, you're not eighteen anymore. You're not twenty eight anymore. Mm-hmm. You've uh, got a couple boys that are about to. One's in college. One's Staring college right in the face, right? Yep. Different stage of life than than you were mm-hmm. as a young hungry lion. Now you're an older, wiser lion, mm-hmm. 
still hungry, but in a different way. Yeah. So I always, I, I refer to this as the second act of life. As, t- talk about what you think about this, Jerry. I think every man, uh, every, uh, not every woman is wired like this, but I think just about every man is where you have to, in order to look in the mirror and respect yourself, you have to do the thing. You have to, you have to get the degree. You have to build the company. You have to get the job. You have to get the girl, whatever it is that checks the box of I made it and I'm, I did the thing, right? Mm-hmm. But I don't think doing the thing in and of itself is fulfilling enough. Because once you get there, most folks look around and say, is this it? Mm-hmm. There's got to be more. Mm-hmm. So then you go from a life of achieving to a life of significance. How do I make my life really matter? I mean, we can keep, we can keep climbing and keep piling up stuff and keep you know, cars and houses and whatever. And plenty of folks do that. But I think there's more. And I know there's more in you because we've been friends a long time. So talk about that transition in your thinking now. I know you're not planning to leave your company. So if you're listening from Naranjo, everything's fine. But, <laughs> but where, where's your head at now in that space? First and foremost, I think it's around um, guiding my boys to be men. Mm. And how old are they? They are 17 and 20. Okay. And um, that is probably the most important job I have is being there for them as a mentor and a dad. So the best way I know to do that is to model all the things Mm. that I think will give them a good life. Mm -hmm. And first and foremost is being a good person and modeling that behavior for them. I would say that... I, you know, I don't know what they're what they're ultimately going to do. Um, they don't know. They don't really right. know. Yeah. yeah, especially now, right? And yeah. my oldest son graduated in 2020, and he actually didn't. I mean, the graduation was in a football on a football field, and we were in squares pods, uh, four family members to watch him graduate during COVID. And during COVID, yeah. yeah. So you know, they're going through their own trials and tribulations. Right. And whatever they choose to do in their academic career, I will totally support. You know, I've got to say that that's probably been one of the things that's been super important to me is that get an education first, and then you at least have that behind you. And that will help you inform what you want to do later in life. Opens doors for sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And the relationships, you know, I, they, I talk all the time about, going to Colorado School of Mines and doing the insane calculations that you're never, ever going to use in your lifetime. Mm. Well, there's a reason for all of that. And one of the things that I've told them is that there's nothing or hardly anything I learned at school that I apply to my daily life now. Right. And, but it, what it was, was the ultimate training ground to discipline your mind right. to solve problems, yes. right? Shows that you can find the answer to it. Shows that you can stick with something. Shows that you're not a quitter. Yeah, there's a lot of upside. Absolutely, yeah. Going through Colorado School of Mines, I knew that. Even I knew this right away as soon as I went to work in corporate world. So there's no problem, no technical problem you can give me that I'm not going to be able to solve. 
eventually I'll solve it. And if I got to work, you know, nonstop for four days, I will figure it out. Mm. That's the kind of confidence that education gave me. Right. It wasn't that I knew how to do this calculation or that calculation or this theorem or whatever applies mm. to the problem. It was that I knew that when I needed to, I could sit down and figure it out with all the tools that I had around me. Mm. And I just want them to have that. Whether, whatever discipline they go into, whether it's um, theology potentially for my younger one or management for my older son, whatever it is, I want them to have been in the gymnasium of mental exercise that pushes them and makes them uncomfortable. The word that we're dancing around is grit. Mm-hmm. That you want them to have grit. Yep. Because if you have that, that's Rudy at Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. The dude had grit. He mm-hmm. just wouldn't quit. Yep. And there's, you can't teach that, but you can train it. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of kids say, well, I don't know why going to school is so stupid. Right. When am I ever going to use this again? I said, you're missing the point completely. Yeah. What you're experiencing is discomfort and learning the art of discipline mm. because it's only through learning that that you'll be able to navigate successfully all the things you want to navigate in life. Time management. <laughs> There's so much. Yeah. So many good lessons. Relationships. Yeah. It is. I don't like this teacher. They don't like me. Yeah. I'm here to tell you, I've taught it at the university level. There were students I didn't like. <laughs> like yeah. that's, that's real, right? Their personalities yeah. were human beings. Yeah. Dealing with someone who you don't like and doesn't like you and still coming to a, a successful end is important. You've got to know how to do that. So yeah. Anyway. I had a professor at Colorado School of Mines who walked in. Uh, we were, it was dynamics, which is a super tough class. And he walked in and he slammed his papers on the front of the, the front desk and he called my name out. He said, you managed to score a 23 on our first exam. And I was like, wow, the guy just put me on blast wow. <laughs> in front of the whole class, right? It wasn't out of 24. It was not. It's <laughs> 23 out of 100. And I was like, wow. You know, I studied so hard and mm. there was nothing I could do to prepare for that. Nothing more I could do to prepare right. for it. It's just extremely difficult. And he said, and you had the high. Because all of you pack up your books and get the, you know what, out of my classroom. He kicked the whole class out? He kicked us out. So you had the highest grade in the class and it was a 23? It was a 23. Maybe it wasn't the students. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that, was, that was just the brand of education right. he was dealing in. Yeah, the gauntlet. He, he made you feel like the dumbest kid walking the earth. There, there's two kinds of professors. And this always irritated the heck out of me when I was at UNC. There are some that you get over, you know, there's, there's two kinds of people, right? Mm-hmm. You get over a difficult, you get over a wall. Now you have a decision to make. It's a hard wall to get over. You could either throw a rope over and try and help the next person a little bit, or you can add a layer of bricks and make it harder. Mm-hmm. And in, in higher education, there's both. And I never wanted to be that second kind. And it sounds like he's that guy where he's just, I'm going to make this as difficult as I can. Yeah. That's gross. Yeah. yeah. And he would berate us. He would, he would make fun of us. Wow. And, but you know what? I remember him yeah. more than most every other right, professor yeah. 
right? It gives you a, a fire in your belly when you when you have a antagonist like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I, I there are a few professors that I wanted them to know that I was working in the industry. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I was having some level of success. Right. Yeah. Because they absolutely just wreck your confidence. Mm. But I don't know. At at this point, looking back, I don't I'm not so sure I would have had it any different. Mm. Good. So then being a good dad father role model yeah and then what else talk about the farm yeah the farm started out as um a real estate investment so i also do real estate investing i did a lot of that with my dad um mostly in commercial properties and the thing i'll tell you about the farm is that i had a vision to have a piece of property on the i-25 corridor and that was, you know, not too far east, not too far west. That was underpriced. So I could buy it at a value so that we could store excess material, pipe, concrete, blocks, mud mats, equipment, whatever we needed to right. store out there, we could store. Boulders, whatever. Rock, extra rock, topsoil, whatever. As long as it was near I-25, so we're in and out of Denver quickly. It made sense. Um, I knew the money, we could save a lot of money by having something on, in the I-25 corridor. And a little, and of course, since we do most of our work in Denver, something, you know, closer to Denver. Mm, than Greeley, at least. Yeah. Than Greeley. So for nine years, I watched different real, real estate websites. And I would run up and down the corridor. Every Sunday night was my ritual. Is there anything that's popped up that would be, in, uh, you know, worth looking at? And a couple of years back, two and a half years back, it actually happened, right? This property, it made no sense. It's 12 acres. It's half a mile off the interstate. It seems like it's way underpriced. Mm. This is Sunday night. Close to Johnson's Corner. Yeah. That's a plus. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. You could get fuel. You get a cinnamon roll. You get, you get breakfast. You get dinner. In Colorado. Yeah. Yeah. You can buy a new uh, cowboy hat. All of that in the same, <laughs> one same stop. You. <laughs> so something didn't seem right to me. So that night I, I emailed the realtor the listing realtor. And I said, I want to see this in the morning. First thing it just hit the market. It'd only been on that website two days. I went out there. I looked at it. I said, this is perfect. The price doesn't make sense. And I want to make an offer. I didn't know where I was going to, how I was going to fund it, how any of that. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to make an offer. I want to get it under contract and I want it immediately. So that was at 10 in the morning. We had a contract written on it by noon. By the end of the day, there were three other backup offers waiting on that property. Wow. So I knew the discipline had paid off, right? Mm-hmm. The discipline of checking every Sunday night for something that didn't make sense, but met all these, this other criteria, it, it had finally paid off. And of course, the sellers were trying to boot me out. They're trying to get these other backup offers who were offering way more. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had, I had locked it down. I had rock solid. Why was it so low? Native American burial ground. Was it <laughs> I think the <uranium>? house, <laughs> you know, the barn was, they used to house um, sheep in there. Okay. So they would show sheep. Okay. So they had like shearing stations. They had treadmills to exercise the sheep. Mm. The barn was actually disgusting. And most of it was disgusting. 
Mm-hmm. Really, so the house had never down. been maintained. It was yeah. really not. It was not in great shape. They had done zero maintenance to this house, mm-hmm. and I. So that to me told me that they were living like that, and it wasn't valuable to them. Got it. Right? They treated it like it wasn't valuable to them, and it was valuable to me. Yeah. So once I grabbed it, I moved a bunch of stuff out there. We started, you know, putting things in the barn that we needed to protect from the elements. And then, you know, wintertime in Colorado, of course, we're shut down because of snow or cold weather. And the concrete crews, we try to keep them busy doing something, right? Where they're doing volunteer work, snow removal, or we're, you know, trying to keep a few guys busy. And we started finishing the inside of the barn. We started, you know, finishing the wall, like insulation, hmm. uh, ship so lap. steel barn. Yeah, steel yeah. barn, nothing fancy. We dug it all out. We put a concrete floor in. And little by little, it started to become comfortable, right? We, so then we started having a couple meetings out in the barn, just staff meetings. And I had an opportunity to acquire two uh, Wagyu steers hmm. from one of our subcontractors. And once I brought those steers out there, it, everything started to turn. The attention of everybody started to turn to the steers, the health of the steers, how they're looking. When are we going to butcher? Man, that's going to be a great barbecue. You talking about this, the employees, the employees. Yeah. yeah, Who were, who were coming out for the occasional meeting. They're all invested now. They're invested in the barbecue. Yeah. (laughs) But I was, uh, I was ribeye and how's sirloin doing? Yeah. Who's going to, who's going to get what, you know, it was kind of the whole calculation. So, I I felt that energy and I felt that that was some that would be something I could do mm. that was different that I could get seven more steers raise them at the end of the year every key employee or superintendent level or manager level would get half a beef wow right that was my idea and we did that so the year goes on raise the cows, everybody, once they hear of this idea, then the energy that started flowing into that place was multiplied. Mm. Everybody knew that one of those cows was theirs, or at least half of it was theirs. And it just created a different way of being Mm. when we were together. And it felt like the right thing to do. And then in my mind, it felt like three spikes was there for that reason was there to create that sense of philanthropy and brotherhood and doing things not necessarily for the bottom line, Mm. but doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. So we planted a garden. That's the other thing we did as the summer uh, rolled in, we planted a garden. And of course, when you have a bunch of guys and a bunch of construction equipment and you say plant a garden, the garden becomes as massive a garden as one acre. The one acre piece of garden will hold, right? Mm-hmm. So they go all out. We got we got the biggest garden by 10 times the size I thought we were going to build. <laughs> <laughs> but it was fun and everybody had an energy around the garden yeah. too. And then we started giving away the produce, mm. right? We started giving it away to retired employees or people on fixed income Mm. or the well County food bank. And it was obvious to me that it was a mission of service more than it was a mission of anything else. Mm. 
And I think I've got to believe that the reason that property came to be and came into my path was because it was meant for something like this. Cool. Yeah. So, Plus that creates and influences and shapes the culture of the whole company. Absolutely. And everybody's has this feeling of we've got a, this is about more than just us mm-hmm. and our paychecks and even river restoration. Mm-hmm. And that's noble work because it's helping people, mm-hmm. but this is different. And so that starts creating conversations about what else could we do? And that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. We would have, we would have parties out there and it dawned on me that when we have employees all get together, we have a good time. Mm-hmm. When we have employees bring their families, it's 10 X better experience for everybody. Mm-hmm. Right. You get to see the kids of these employees and these hardworking people relax. You get to see the kids chase chickens. You get to see them um, try to, you know, get the cow's attention. You get to see all of these magical moments. These kids, you've heard their names before. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. And they you show like, up. Man, you're sick a lot because your dad calls in about once a month. <laughs> <laughs> we don't go there at the farm. <laughs> We don't discuss That's attendance. For the <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's for the office to sort out. But it is a magical experience mm-hmm. to bring the kids of employees out to the yeah. farm is is for me is the ultimate reminder that that we have we are doing something good. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, so Jerry, I want to talk about how you're moving into coaching. Mm-hmm. But before I do that, let's talk a little bit about what's your morning routine like? What's your day like? Time to oh, wake up. Yeah, my morning routine is is under construction at the moment. So I'm trying to be more mindful with my morning, um, trying to get up around five and then pour into my education and Mm -hmm. to my being from five to six. I'm trying to give myself one hour before I ever check the phone, before I ever check email, Voxer, text messages. It's just one hour of trying to build a better me. What are you doing? Reading, working out? Yeah. So actually my, my son and I have started a, a, well, my son is my coach in a lot of ways. Uh, spiritually, he, he called me on Friday night a few weeks back and said, you have time for a 45 minute Bible study. And I was not feeling good that night. I was not up for it. I was already in bed. As a matter of fact, mm. I was just not feeling great. Mm-hmm. And I said, absolutely. <laughs> and he shows up, right? And uh, and he's asking me, do you have a physical Bible? I said, yes, I do. But I can't find it right now. <laughs> I, I actually did give one away, right? So I was trying to find my other one. And he's like a little disappointed because that's okay. We can do without it. <laughs> <laughs> he goes to his laptop. He puts on the TV screen a session or a, a training module about praying. Right. So he says every day we should be praying at some level. Right. And what's your practice? And we just had this back and forth of, well, this is mine. What's yours? And and we had this conversation. So we made a commitment that for the next, however many days until the end of February, we were going to be invested in this training to be better at praying, Mm. right? How to pray. What does it mean to pray? Um, So, I think that's what I'm trying to do a lot now is say, how do I wake up, set my intention for the day? I go to bed with an intention. I wake up trying to recapture that intention. Mm-hmm. And then I go into that exercise, whether it's reading, praying, journaling, 
things that things that are all investments in myself in my in my mental health in my spiritual health right right and i'm trying to do that for an hour there's this i there's this the default i would say especially for a guy over 50 i'm 50 is i've pretty much learned everything i'm going to learn and but that's or we get to a certain spot in life where we think well i don't really need to do that kind of stuff mm-hmm. this is when we need to do it more yeah because as a young guy for example just speaking of, i didn't have a lot of opportunities mm-hmm. i mean i was just scratching and trying to get noticed and trying to figure out what i was supposed to do whatever now there's there's a lot more to choose from so what do i need to pick well i need more guidance now mm-hmm. i need to i need to really figure out and identify who I am and what I'm about mm-hmm. and what my values are so that when another opportunity comes along, does this or does this not align with what I want to do? Mm. And when, when you have that kind of alignment, it's easy to say no yeah. because it's, it's just glaring. Yeah, that's, I'm not doing that. No, thank I, I appreciate it. Great opportunity. 20 years ago, I would have jumped at that, yeah. but not right now. Well, it's like the non-traditional student, right? We've all been, when I was in school, there would be guys who were in their forties who were now back in engineering school. Mm. We hated those guys. They had all their homework done. They were organized. <laughs> they they the were questions. They were sitting in the front of the classroom. Yeah. They were asking all the questions. They were talking to the professor after class. They were soaking in all that knowledge, yeah. right? They were just so they saw the value passionate yeah. about their education. Mm-hmm. And we thought, oh, this guy, you know, we're that non-traditional student now, right. or at least I am. Mm-hmm. It's like, I've got so much to learn. I get, I get anxiety by the number of books I haven't read. Mm. You know, that gives me anxiety now because I got so much to learn. Are you reading, listening to books? What do you do? The best way for me is to actually read them and write in the book. Mm, I I get the most from that. So paper book, writing in the margins. Yep. That's that what, you know, that works best for me. I can do the e-readers. I can do book, you know, I'll listen to books Mm -hmm. um, as I'm driving. But really the, the experience for me is if I'm reading and writing something down from it. Mm, that's good. So that's why I have all this anxiety because it takes a long time to get through a book get that way. Book, yeah. Got it. You, know, you got to be at a desk or you got to be in a chair. You got to have something to write with. It's got to be a whole you thing. Have to turn off distractions. Yeah. yeah. It's an intense experience. All right. So let's talk now, Jerry, about you're, you're moving into doing some coaching. What is that like? How did you get into that? How, what's that looking like in terms of we all have 24 hours in a day, got a lot going on. How is that? How are you navigating that? How's that working? Well, I think it goes back to what we were talking about with my boys and and how am I showing up for them? Mm. And how you want to be remembered, all of that. Legacy. Yeah. 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 What's the best thing I can be doing for them? Um, so it all started for me around 2018 when my dad was um, going to retire. I reached out to a guy that I know. His name is Alok. A potter eye, and um, he's a mentor, coach, okay. right? And what I wanted from him wasn't anything other than how do I navigate this buyout with my dad, with you got money involved and you got family involved, right? And I want a second set of eyes on this somebody who's a third party who doesn't have emotional attachments to either person to help me walk through that. Mm in a way where I'm being as healthy as I can be. Right. You want right? it to be fair and equitable, but you also 
you can't go over one way or the other because he's your dad either way. Right. right. So that's, yeah. So yeah. I, I just wanted to do it right. And I wanted to, I wanted to have a relationship with my dad after that. Right. I didn't want anything to get in the way of that. I've seen it in my family, especially, you know, the grudges and the, mm-hmm. you know, it goes back generations of how, when things don't go right with money, you can destroy families. Mm-hmm. So I really didn't want that to happen. So I reached out to this guy who I thought could walk this walk with me and provide me some guidance and just be a third party, second set of eyes in our relationship. Um, through that time, I became connected to his network of, of people and we really didn't, um, we got through all of that and it was years after that, that I connected with him again on something. Oh, I, I was telling him about three spikes farm. I said, I've got this farm. I want to want it to be a philanthropic farm. I really believe in my heart that this place is meant to do good mm. and give back. And I just want to talk about it with you because we've, we've had these conversations, right? It's a good extra set of eyes, yeah. Yeah. He said, well, I'm having an event in July in Scottsdale and come out. We can talk about it. I said, well, what's the event? He said, doesn't matter. Just come. Just come. You want to talk to me? Come yeah. over here, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and yeah, he's a pretty high, highly successful coach. So, you know, to, to get some of his time is either going to cost you a ton of money or you got to have a lot invested in this thing, right? And we, we've been very close. Um friends but when he said just come for for whatever reason i decided to just go and listen and i walked out of that three-day event with an insight into people trying to do good right there were business owners uh, private equity investors uh, podiatrists other coaches all in this room who are all wanting to uplift other people Mm. And it was really a, a cool experience for me to mm-hmm. to be around people like that, thinking on that level. Yeah. So, it's what so I've learned helpful to ask someone who's a couple steps ahead of you. Yeah. How did you get there? I mean, you can look at someone ten steps ahead of you, and you might as well. It, it's 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 so far out of the league. Yep. But when you have someone one or two steps ahead, then it's they can also remember being where you're at. So super yeah. helpful. Yeah, and I think as men, we don't ever reach out. And ask for help, right? And it wasn't that I was asking for help, but in a way I was. Mm -hmm. Like, I want to do something. You're asking for guidance. Yep. Yeah. I want your expertise on this. I need your eyes on this. And as men, why don't we do that? Why don't we go to somebody who's older in our family and say, look, I just want to talk with you. I want to sit with you. I want to understand how you see the world. Mm. You've obviously navigated successfully certain things in your life. What can I gain from that? How can that help me? And as men, we don't do that. We're mm-hmm. just, we'll figure it out ourselves. We'll, mm-hmm. you know, we'll listen to podcasts. We'll read a book. Being in person with other people who have that same energy as you do mm-hmm. is a multiplier effect. How to uplift people, right? So from that event. I understand that environment. I pastor a church called Mosaic. <laughs> <laughs> and that's really what a church is. is yeah. We're all gathering we're all on the same journey, different places on it for sure. Yeah. But that's what we're doing. We're all trying to fulfill what God has asked us to do, you know, grow in our faith. That's what it is. Yeah. So interesting. Anyway. Yeah. And it's all, you know, there's a lot of 
show business that goes into that experience mm-hmm. in because it is a celebration mm-hmm. right you are actually there and it it does feel good to be with other people who have that same intentionality mm-hmm. in their life okay right so what happened from from that point to now is that i realized how many people i was already mentoring mm. how many people i already was their first phone call when things got really difficult in business mm. or their first phone call when things got really difficult in their personal life and i realized that through three spikes farm and being a philanthropic farm and giving back to the community that all of a sudden that message could be heard mm. better right so as a man, if you're going through something and you want to talk, then you come to Three Spikes Farm and all of a sudden, all of your perceptions about the world change. You're out here, you see steers that are being raised for employees. You see chickens and the eggs are being eaten by employees of Naranjo. You're seeing a garden you know, that's harvested for people and there's no profit motive behind any of it. Mm-hmm. And you get in that space mentally and you become, you let your guard down and you can have those conversations. Right. So That also starts creating ideas in their specific kind of area or their, like when I go visit another church, I might, I might see a hundred things. Mm-hmm. But but one thing makes me think of oh yeah. we could do this at Mosaic differently not necessarily what they're doing yeah that's what they're looking at you and saying I'm not going to go probably start a farm yeah but this gets me on a different path of thinking yeah hmm. I always call that the million the million dollar conversation mm-hmm. moment right you could read a book and if you take one line out of the book and apply it to your life that's all you needed out of that right. book there are times in a conversation with somebody you could have a million dollar conversation. Something you, some little tweak of how you looked at things before right. that you don't look at the same now mm-hmm. or an opportunity. And one I'm, way they said something. Yeah. Right. There, or one idea that you have from a lot of people saying, or a lot of people's different perspective on the topic. So when I'm with that group, there are times I've had million dollar conversations, right? It's maybe a 15 minute conversation, mm. but the idea I take away from it it has that sort of an impact on my business, on the community. Um, if it's something I can multiply, then then I'm all in on that. Mm. So there are people in this group um, that I connect with regularly. And we meet every other week uh, by Zoom. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we've also been to Tulum, Telluride, Tucson. and uh, We're going to India in February. Mm. So it's this group the of same people. group of people yeah yeah who are all, all doing the same kind of stuff they're doing the work they're putting themselves in the room where those conversations are happening right so my idea isn't necessarily to coach and create a business out of it i mean i'll do that mm-hmm. uh, one of the things my mentor said is i i charge you because i want you to come here playing all out so if I charge you twenty dollars, you're going to show up. It's like a gym membership. If you pay nine dollars a month for a gym membership, whether you go or you don't go, it doesn't matter. Right. You pay a thousand dollars a month, you're going to be there. Right. You're probably going to be in shape. Yeah. Right. 
Same thing with coaching. I'm on the $9 a month plan, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Planet Fitness. Diane yeah. said I couldn't do any uh, insulting any of the insult? host, so I'm going to refrain <laughs> appreciate that. from commenting. Thank you, Diane. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the same thing. He says, I want to. I only charge you enough for you to pay attention. Hmm. You're not going to miss an appointment. You're not going to miss our 90 minutes that we only have every two weeks. How much is it going to cost for you to pay attention? And and that's really how that, that relationship goes. Mm-hmm. So I'm not really interested. I do a lot of mentoring um, with young people and young professionals. I do a, a lot of that. Mm-hmm. But it's also for the mentor to raise their game. When right. they are being paid, all of a sudden, that one-hour conversation is getting about three hours of prep, and it's getting another three hours of follow-up. And it's all mental energy going towards that one person's problem mm-hmm. or idea. Or so, potential, right? Or yeah. potential. And yeah, I think that the money that it, that changes hands is really just an energy that we are going to create something powerful. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I hate paying it. I If, if I'm going to meet with a loke and I, I got to pay him, I hate writing that check. Mm-hmm. But when I show up, it's it's game on. We're yeah. going to have a very serious conversation. And from the conversation, we're going to have million-dollar ideas. Interesting. Yeah. Good. All right, Jerry. A couple more questions. Uh, this is a – the word successful is so loaded, mm-hmm. right? It, it means something different mm-hmm. to everybody. So what does that word mean to you, and are you successful? Measuring success has meant – Many different things for me over the years. And as we evolve, um, I think it becomes, it's changing all the time. It was always about getting a job, buying a house, buying a car, buying a nice car, um, having kids, putting them in a good school, putting them in private school, putting them in a private university. All of those are things that we think measure success. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, those are all goals and things you want to do. But at the end of the day, you know you're successful if you are able to give back. Where you feel like, I could go buy this or I could start this. That will multiply the impact that I'm going to have. And I think that's where there's a transformation Hmm. and what success means. And for me, at, at this point in my life, success would mean paying back all of those people who walked into my path and helped me on my journey. Right. And being one of those people, there it is, you know, be those people Mm -hmm. and you will, you will have an impact on, on other people's lives. You just, it just is the energy that, that you put out will impact people. So how do I be a Bill Jackson to some young student? Right. How do I be a John Agee to a young up-and-coming engineer or employee of Naranjo? Um, how do I look at someone like Alok and be a good person, mm-hmm. right? Have a mission of just trying to do good in the world, multiply my impact. Mm-hmm. Those are all people put in my life for a reason. And success to me is finding the next person that I want to be right and have an impact on as many people as possible. So 
speaking to that, this in two weeks, we're hosting a uh, women in construction. Uh, NAWIC is sponsoring a program out at the farm. It's a women in construction national association of women in construction. They're holding a building block competition for kids K through six. Right. And we're hosting that in two weeks. Uh, We've also partnered with Clara Brown entrepreneurial Academy. So if you are familiar with Clara Brown, um, Google it. it, It's a much better and more concise (laughs) way to explain it. But she was a first slave to travel west of the Mississippi Hmm. and own a business. And she set up in the Colorado mountain towns and had a laundromat and did a bunch of different I've heard things. Of her, yeah. Now that yeah. you say that, yeah. So the Clara Brown Academy is in Aurora. We partner with them. We we do fundraising for them, with them. Um, anything we can do to help those kids um, in that school. We're also going to, we're trying to get an event put together in April where we'll be bringing in two highly respected people working in education where the one is Mike Iskander. He has a mission to deliver his message, which is which relates to the mental health of kids, right? Yeah. And it's through time travel time travel journeys that he he does this. And then there's also a, an author, a Kathleen Friend, who has written a book called The Greatness Chair. So what we're trying to do in April is bring them out have an event and bring different schools in to participate in that. Mm. So that's success Mm. to me, right? The business is the business and the employees that work at Naranjo are absolutely the cream of the crop. Like the team that we have is, is top notch. We can do all of this because of them and it all feeds us in return. Mm. But success is when we can do things like, um, bring kids out to the farm, give them an experience, be a Bill Jackson, be a John Agee, be a Kevin Jeldon, right. be a Herman um, to these kids, right? Especially seeing a person of color. Exactly. Looking and saying that guy somehow mm-hmm. did it. Mm-hmm. If he could do it, yeah. yeah, that's huge. And I really, you know, if you look at how, you tackle this problem of entitlement, right? My kids grew up, they had a way better life materialistically than, than I did, mm-hmm. right? Their lifestyle was way better, way easier. But what's the one thing that connects with them is being of service to others. So somebody asked me the other day, how do we, how do we teach our kids if, since they've been given this, these, all of these opportunities how do we get them to appreciate all of that? Mm. How do we get them to be good people? And I really believe it's acts of service. Mm. When they become connected to the service to others, all of that goes away. Mm. And you start to uncover what they really are underneath. Interesting. Yeah. So have you ever heard um, it, that, that? So you're, you're, what you're describing is a challenge that every parent has, right? Because you want to give your kid a better life than you had. So Mike Tyson, uh, have you ever heard about him talk about his son wanting to box. Mm-mm. So he had a son who wanted a box and Mike told him, no, you can't box. And he's like, why? And he said, because you're Mike Tyson's son. And so they're going to throw the toughest, meanest junkyard dogs at you. Mm-hmm. And you're not that. Mm-hmm. He said that what created me was being raised in an orphanage in New York. And 
I was starving. And, I, you know, he, he goes, I was a junkyard dog. Mm-hmm. What created you was private schools and a gated community. And he says, so you're, we're not the same. We might be the same genetically, but we're not the same. So you'll get creamed. Mm-hmm. So the challenge for any parent who's pushed their kid up one notch is how do I create the environment for that kid, which is what you're describing, yep. when they were raised in a better place than I was. Mm-hmm. I don't know what their world is going to be like, but I've got to try and figure it out because otherwise they're going to be that Mike Tyson's kid in the ring and get yeah. demolished by life. So I love that, man. love how having your kids look at other people and serving them. And yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's powerful. You know, for them to be able to be around kids, like that energy mm-hmm. and to see that this kid may be coming from a tough environment. This kid may not have as much as he needs or wants. Mm-hmm. We've got to somehow open those portals for our kids mm. to want to lift other people up. Right. And through them wanting to lift other people up, maybe we break through, you know, some of that entitlement, mm-hmm. some of that um, casualness that the world is, is there for them and mm-hmm. it's all easy. We have to expose them to difficult situations. Right. We have to bring people in from all walks of life. We've got to let them suffer and struggle a little bit. Yeah. It's, it's hard as a parent because you yeah. want to rescue them. Yep. Especially when you have the means to rescue them. Yep. But sometimes that's the worst thing we can do. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, last question. Uh, where have you seen God in all of it? I... I've been spending a lot of time on this recently because when I look back through my story and where I'm at now and where I am on my journey with my son, as far as, you know, Bible study and, and prayer. And he said to me the other day, we were, we started a book together. We started reading a book on uh, the, the spiritual disciplines or we bought, Two books, same time we started, got them on the same day. We we're going to read them together, read mm-hmm. it together. And I asked him a, a week later, I said, okay, where are you in your book? He says, I'm on chapter four. I said, I'm on chapter one. I, I better step it up. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, 17, he said, no, dad, read it at your pace. That's the point. The mm-hmm. message isn't how fast you can go or where I'm at relative to you. It's like, what does it do for you and at what pace? And you absorb that at whatever pace you need to. Mm. And I'm like, <laughs> 17, huh? And also a minor flex on his dad. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. He loves, he loves to, uh, he loves to ask me, um, do you have your physical Bible? <laughs> but it's okay. I, I take it all in because I think it's, it's his gift. And I, right. I yeah. love you're, having you're that nurturing it, encouraging it. Yeah. yeah. So what was I, what was I talking Where's about? Where's God in all of it? Yeah. yeah. So when I look back at my life and I look back at where I came from mm-hmm. and all of the things that happened in my life, I can count more than a dozen times where my life was at risk. Mm. Right. And there are things that I survived. I shouldn't have survived. Mm. And that's happened a bunch in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. And so many stories to tell, but I, I won't take any more time, but there were things that happened in my life that, that are unexplainable as to why I survived them. And I only know that I survived them 
for what I'm doing right now. Mm. And it's not mine to do, Mm -hmm. right? It's not my, I was having a conversation the other day and something came out of my mouth that I, for the first time in my life was watching come out of my mouth Mm. and it wasn't my, it wasn't something I created. Interesting. So I think for me, God is probably has been patiently waiting for me to have that moment where he's speaking through me mm. and not have you that i the war of art. Have you read that? Yeah. Yeah. He talks about the muse wanting to, you know, his, uh, he's got a very vague sense of who God is, but God is trying to speak to the earth through you. And yeah. Yeah. What you're describing. And it's not like I'm some special person. It's just that I've, feel like I can watch that happen now Mm. as a third party. Yeah. And it's not anything I created, but it was something that I needed to say Mm. or something I needed to do. Yeah. And it was the, it's most recently in my life, I've been able to watch those things unfold and appreciate them. Mm. And it's always something really good, right? It's always something Really, it feels really good to say or do, mm-hmm. and I'm just happy that I got to be a conduit for that to happen. Yeah. It's like the farm. I didn't buy the farm to build a philanthropic farm. I bought the farm to lay down construction materials on a piece of real estate that was underpriced. Mm. All of that is just a conduit to doing good, mm. and it feels really awesome to be a part of it. As it turns out, this was the plan. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Well, Jerry, with that, we'll wrap it up. Thank you for being here. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I will put Jerry's contact info and a few pictures of the work he does because it's pretty neat. I'll put that in the show notes. We'll see you guys next time. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Thank you for joining us today. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. (laughs) 